Well, good morning. Okay, so the holidays are over. Let's get real. Let me ask you a question. In your family gatherings, or in your holiday get-togethers, no show of hands on this, but in your holiday gatherings, was there some weird family tension? (laughs) Be honest, you're amongst friends. Maybe someone had a little bit too much eggnog, and their lips got loose. Or maybe in the backyard football game, Uncle Joe wanted to show you how they did it back in the day and why they still had it. Or maybe somebody broke a family heirloom. Or worse yet, somebody broke the cardinal rule and they started talking about politics around the dinner table. Or maybe, just maybe, there's always a little bit of a sibling Rivalry that's always comes out during the holidays. You know, families are an interesting thing, are they not? <laughs> they bring out the best in us at times. And then at other times, well, they bring out some of the worst in us. Well, in Genesis chapter 25, you can go ahead and turn there. We see... Some sibling rivalry from the very beginning. And some family dysfunction that has long-term consequences for the family that's involved, but also for you and I. And so Genesis chapter 25 is where we're going to be this morning. And you know, if you've been with us for a while, we've been in the book of Genesis. But I know many of you are just now joining us. You've just found out about TCF or something. So um, let me give you a little bit of a background. Let me bring you up to speed in the book of Genesis. I'm going to try to do this in three minutes. <laughs> three minutes. No, really. So you can break down the book of Genesis into two. One way of outlining it is in two chapters. First 11 chapters, 1 through 11, is creation and proto-history. Creation and proto-history. And, and so what you see in the creation of proto-history in chapter 1 is the beginning of practically everything. Everything, of course, except for the Lord, because he existed, but he created everything else. He speaks it into creation, which means creation comes about not by a struggle like other Near Eastern um, creation accounts. It doesn't come about through a struggle of different deities. It comes about, about through the sovereign, loving word of the Lord. He creates it. So that's chapter 1. The beginning of practically everything. Chapter 2 is the beginning of humanity. He creates Adam and Eve. The Lord makes them male and female in his image, which means male and female are to represent and to mirror the the image of God. They're to mirror, represent the image of God. That's the beginning of chapter 2. He creates them, puts Adam and Eve in a loving garden. They have everything going for them. Peace with God, peace with the creation, peace with each other, peace with themselves. That's why we're told they're naked and not ashamed. Because they have complete shalom, what Hebrews call shalom. They experience this full-orbed sense of love. Don't you wish you could experience that just for a moment? Well, why can't you? Well, because of what happens in chapter 3, which is the beginning of sin and all of its effects. What happens in chapter 3 is Satan takes the form of a serpent and deceives Eve and then Adam. And they trust Satan's word rather than God's word and they plunge all of humanity into sin. 
And that has devastating consequences. And we see that trail out through the rest of the first 11 years in chapter 4. So chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. And then what happens in the, the sin, it just keeps deteriorating. Chapter 6, we read in chapter 6, verse 8, that every, every, uh, Every thought of hum- humanity was bent towards evil. And so the Lord brings wholesale judgment against humanity. And that's in chapters 6 through 8 with the great flood. He b- essentially restarts in chapter 6 through chapter 9. Chapter 10 is the table of nations. Chapter 11 is um, the Tower of Babel where humanity decides they're not going to embrace and rest in the, in the identity that the Lord had given them. What was the identity the Lord had given them? bearers of God and they say no that's not enough for us we're going to try to create a name for ourselves and so they they create the the tower of Babel the Lord scatters them and the Lord says beginning in chapter 12 so that's 1 through 11 creation and proto-history beginning in chapter 12 that trails all the way through the the end of the book chapter 50 is covenant and patriarchal history am I going too fast okay covenant and patriarchal history and that centers on the Abrahamic covenant that, of course, is with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And what you see in chapter 12 is the Lord calls him. He calls him. He says, Abraham, Abraham's 75 years old. He says, I want you to leave everything and everyone you know behind. And I want you to venture out with me in faith. So he calls him. He covenants with him. The covenant is, if you trust me and you walk with me, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and you will have offspring. Remember, Abraham's 75 years old. His wife, Sarah, is barren. And he hears offspring and he goes, okay. He covenants with him. The Lord covenants with him and says, I'm going to make it out of you a great nation. So he calls him. He covenants with him. Third thing he does is he um, counts him as righteous. Because Abraham steps out in faith and he says, okay, Lord, I will walk, I will walk with you. This is in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. He counts him as righteous. He says, before Abraham had done anything other than trusting the Lord, the Lord counts him as righteous. He puts his faith in the Lord himself. And again, he's counting him as righteous. And Abraham's faith is the prototype for all saving faith. Um, which means righteousness. Now please hear this. Righteousness. It doesn't come about through religious obedience. It doesn't come about through religious discipline. It doesn't come about through religious pedigree. Through simple faith in the word, in the word of the Lord. That's how righteousness comes about. It comes about through simple faith in the Lord's word. So he calls him. He covenants with him. He counts him as righteous. Fourth thing the Lord does is he causes his wife, Sarah, to give birth. Remember, when Abraham is born, or when uh, Isaac is born, Abraham's a hundred years old. And his wife, Sarah, is 90. And she herself says her womb is as good as dead. But the Lord had promised offspring. And so the Lord works against the odds. And he causes Sarah to become pregnant. By the way, the Lord always is working against the odds. And by the way, the church, the body of Christ, does their best work when the odds are stacked against them. This is oftentimes how the Lord works. And so he causes, the Lord causes Sarah's womb to become uh, fertile. And she gives birth at 90 to Isaac, the son of promise. The one that they had been waiting for for 25 years finally comes. The one who's going to carry on the Abrahamic covenant. And so he grows until he's about 40. 
And Abraham realizes when he's 40, hey, I'm getting old. I'm now 140. I'm no longer hitting my prime. I'm actually getting a little bit old here. And my son is going to carry on the Abrahamic covenant. And there's a problem. He's single. No, we need to figure this out. And so what you have in Genesis 24 and 25 is this great romance story where Abraham sends a servant on a long journey to seek and secure a bride. And what we read in that account is his servant goes and finds a bride, brings the bride to um, to Isaac. And when Isaac sees her and she sees Isaac, she lets down a veil over her face, which symbolizes that she's his bride. And we read in the latter half of chapter 25 that she went into the tent with him and Isaac, or uh, yeah, Isaac, Isaac loved her. He loved her. It's a great line. There's this huge romance story right in smack a dab in the middle of Genesis. Nobody thinks romance of Genesis. And yet it's right there. And what it does is it tells us how the Abrahamic promise is going to continue. But more than that, it tells us about the gospel. It's actually telling us about the gospel because God himself sent a servant on a long journey, a longer journey from heaven to earth to seek and secure a bride for his son. And if you've, and, and you're to respond like, Re, like Rebecca did when the servant came to her and said, will you go? And she says, I will go. Yes, I will go. I will follow. That's how we're to respond to the message of the gospel. See, it's, it, there is a huge romance story, but it's actually telling about the larger romance story of the gospel itself. How, how Jesus has come from heaven to earth to seek and secure you as the bride for Christ. That's an amazing thing. Now, what happens is, beginning in chapter 25, verse 19, the story will actually continue. Are you in 25? Okay. Good. Chapter 25, we're going to be working verses 19, uh, 19 through 34 this morning. And let me tell you where we're going to go, and then we'll go there. In verses 19 through 26, what we'll see is we'll see the Lord sovereignly chooses. The Lord sovereignly chooses, and he chooses Jacob rather than Esau. And we'll see that when we get there. But the Lord sovereignly chooses, that's in 19 through 26. And then in verses 27 through 34, we'll see Esau stupidly chooses. Esau stupidly chooses, and he chooses a mess of stew rather than his spiritual inheritance. Meaning he squanders his spiritual inheritance to satisfy his physical appetites. And we'll come back to that at the very end. Okay, let's get into the text. Beginning in verse 19, here's what we read. These are the generations of Isaac. And if, if you remember when we started the book of Genesis, way back in 2020, um, when we started, anytime you see those, those words, these are the generations of that means there's a transition. A whole new section is coming. And so these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of 
Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Uh, so, well, and Isaac, verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Why? Because she was barren. So notice some of the exact same strains and stresses of the previous generation. Because remember, Sarah was barren for 25 years. Some of the same strains and stresses are now being experienced by Rebecca. And the Lord, uh, and, and, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Now, we read that, and we think that's that's immediately, but that's not the case. You skip down to verse 26, and you see that she didn't conceive for another 20 years. So for 20 years, Isaac was praying. He probably started praying right after the honeymoon, when he found out his wife hadn't conceived. I mean, people loved honeymoon babies in those days. And when, after the honeymoon, when she didn't conceive, he probably started praying right then. And notice that he has to learn, Isaac has to learn, the same lessons of faith that his dad did. And you know, every generation, every single generation, has to learn the lessons of faith. And our job as parents isn't to shield them from them. Oftentimes the lessons of faith, have you noticed this in your adult life, that the lessons of faith are always painful and hard? Well, what do you try your best to do as a parent? You try to shield your kids from things that are painful and hard. And yet that's not actually our job. Um, we all try to keep our, keep our kids from disappointments and hurts and all these things, but the lessons of faith are oftentimes right there in the midst of the hard things. And so our job isn't necessarily to shield them from them, but it's to guide them through them. It's to guide them through them and to keep them focused on the Lord. And I'm sure that Abraham did that. Now remember, Abraham lived to be 175 years old. Isaac was born when Abraham was 100. And Isaac took Rebekah when he was 40. Right? How old then is Abraham? He's 140. So for the next 20 years, as he's, as Isaac is praying for his wife, Abraham's right there. He's, Isaac is dealing with the exact same thing that Abraham knew so well, a barren wife and longing for children. And so he probably comes alongside of his son and reminds him, interprets the situation and says, son, I know you're going through something hard right now. I dealt with the exact same thing, but the Lord is with you. He knows what he's doing. He'll see you through this. You can trust him. The covenant is true. He has always been faithful to his word, so continue to trust him. And so after 20 years, after 20 years of praying, long nights, praying, longing, hoping, that somehow Rebecca would conceive. She conceives. Look at verse 22. She conceives. Everybody's really happy. But then the children, note the plural, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, <laughs> why is this happening to me? 
And so she went to inquire of the Lord. So she doesn't just have one baby. She has two babies. And as the pregnancy progressed, um, her womb, it became the setting for a wrestling match. That's what's taking place here. Um, instead of just the normal baby kicking, which if you've been pregnant, you know the feeling of, of, a, of a baby kicking inside your stomach. If you're dad, you know the feeling. You put your hand on it. Oh, this is so cool. She did not think this was cool at all. This, they, she, they weren't just kicking. They were kicking each other. They were kicking and clawing. This is a WWF wrestling match going on inside of Rebecca's womb. You see the phrase in verse 22, the children struggled? The word struggle there, it can mean crushing. Crushing. Uh, what it means is there is a fight for supremacy happening inside of her womb. And she feels every bit of it. Now listen, she can't go to the doctor for a sonogram. She can't go get an ultrasound. So what does she have to do? She has to go to the Lord. Gosh darn it, I can't go get a sonogram. I better go to the Lord about this. And so that's what she does. She goes and she inquires of the Lord. She says, Lord, I thought this was a good thing. Me becoming pregnant, I thought this was going to be so great. What What is happening And the Lord responds. Look at verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So this is a prophecy. And notice that the Lord sees the beginning from the end of these two lives. He sees their destinies. He sees everything about them. He sees who they are and what they will become. Make note of that. Make note of what the Lord sees in the lives of those in the womb. And what does that tell you? But he sees it all. And he he tells Rebecca, he says, oh, honey, you have two lives within you. And not just two lives. But you have two nations, and they're fighting for supremacy right now. And one will be stronger than the other. And the older will actually serve the younger. And that right there, that last line, is a really interesting line. Because it is completely countercultural. Everything in that culture favored the eldest son. There was, a, in, in that culture, in that time, there was a law called the primogeniture. And the primogeniture, it was the laws that guaranteed the rights of inheritance, the rights of double, it's a, it's a status of privilege, a double portion of property. How many of you are oldest siblings? You loved, you would have loved primogeniture. You got double prestige and double property upon the passing of your, of your parents. You would have loved it. My wife's uh, eldest. And I, I always think, no, we should go back to this. This is, this is good living right here. Um, this is, this is, this is what it would have been. And for the Abrahamic family, it would have meant the inheriting the rights of the firstborn. It would have included the inheriting of the Abrahamic covenant. So, ex, extra prestige, double portion of property, and for the Abraham family, it would have included the Abrahamic covenant. But note, note what, uh, what the Lord says here. 
the Lord turns that on its head. And he says the older, in this case, the older shall serve the younger. He turns this on his head. He goes against culture. This is so countercultural. God's ways are not our ways. And he makes a sovereign choice on which child he will work in and work through for his redemptive purposes. He makes this sovereign choice of who he's going to work in and who he's going to work through for his redemptive purposes. So he tells Rebecca, there's two nations within you. There's going to be conflict. The Lord sees everything about these kids inside and out. And then, uh, and then inside of Rebecca, of course, as you probably know, are Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau and Jacob would probably be the right way of saying it because Esau is the oldest. And Esau comes out and he forms the nation of Edom. And Jacob is later named Israel. He becomes the father of Israel. Now you gotta remember, who is Moses writing the book of Genesis to? The nation of Israel. What's happening to the nation of Israel as he's doing this? They've just entered into the promised land. So he's writing this story to Israel to trace their history, to trace their story. Well, who was it that refused Israel passage? It was the Edomites. Aha! So what Moses is doing is saying, we're going all the way back to the origins here. Edom, the people who just refused you passage through the land and made you walk all the way around it? This is their story. This is how the conflict began. It's right here in the womb of Rebekah, this conflict began. And so the Lord tells Rebekah, you're going to have two sons. There's going to be conflict among them. And there was, by the way. Edom became some of the fiercest enemies of Israel. There's going to be conflict between them. And the older will serve the younger. So the Lord tells her all of this. And then her due date arrives. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red all over his body, like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Um, so he comes out all fuzzy. You know, some kids just come out a little more fuzzy than the other ones do. And um, they look at him and they say, let's, let's name him Esau because Esau is hairy. It means hairy. So we got Harry over here. So not, not all that imaginative, by the way, on the parts of, of, uh, Isaac and Rebecca. Um, they gave, they gave him the name Harry. They need to take a class in the naming of today's kids because we got some really imaginative ones today, but that's not what they do. They just go with Harry. They see him, little fuzzy guy. Okay, we're going to call you Harry. So the first one's born and then the next one comes right on his heels. Look at verse 26. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. (laughs) So his name was called Jacob. Uh, Jacob means something like heel clutcher or heel grabber. It's something along those lines. Um, Not a great name, but whatever. That's what it is. And then we're told that Isaac is 60 years old. Last part of verse 26, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So he's 60 when these kids are born, which puts Abraham at 160. Because remember, Abraham doesn't pass away until he's 175. Which means that for the first 15 years of these kids' lives, Abraham is Grandpa Abraham. And what do grandpas do when they get grandsons? 
they put them up on their lap, they bounce them a little bit, and they tell them the family story. That's what they do. If you're a grandpa, you know this. You put them up on your lap, you tell them the story. If you're a Christian grandpa, you tell them the Lord's faithfulness to your family throughout throughout your lifetime. So for 15 years, now this comes in into the account later. For 15 years, these kids are being talked talk to, shared from by Grandpa Abraham. He's telling them how the Lord has been faithful through his entire life. And, and at this point, he's at least 160 He's saying, for 160 years, 170 years, the Lord has been faithful. You can trust the Lord. The Lord's covenant has been given to me and it's going to come to you. The covenant is good. You you want to trust the Lord. He's teaching his kids. He's trying to pass on the faith to his kids. He's he's, um, doing everything he can to pass on the faith. So what you got in verses 19 through 26 is the Lord sovereignly chooses. Now, verses 27 through 34 is you will see Esau stupidly chooses. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. So right off the bat, we're just told of their different personalities. Even though they come from the same womb, they are polar opposites. Let me ask you, parents, can you relate to that? Do you have two kids who have wildly different personalities? They came from the same womb, came from the same mom, but they have wildly different personalities? That's the case here. And Esau, we're told, was your typical outdoorsman. He loved to hunt. He loved to be outside. He loved to be chasing game out in the wilderness. Nothing, nothing wrong with that, time-honored tradition. So he was a hunter. He liked being outside. And when his season was over, he liked watching the outdoor channel. <laughs> Just what you do. He was sitting there watching the outdoor channel. Jacob, on the other hand, he was more of a homebody. He was content to stay at home and to watch the Food Channel. Very, very content to do this. And every parent knows that you can have two children from raised by the same parents in the same house, and they could have completely different personalities and interests. And that is certainly the case here. These two boys are wildly different. And that comes into play. Look at verse 28. Isaac, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. <laughs> but Rebecca, a quick way to get a dad's heart is to give him some food, give him some meat. A buddy of mine just killed an elk a while back on our property, and he uh, he dropped off some of the elk jerky to me the other day, and my heart was instantly attached to him when when he dropped it off. I can tell you there was a love like we have never experienced before. You hand a guy a piece of elk jerky and he's happy. So Isaac, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebecca loved Jacob. Hmm. So this is not a moment brought to you by focus on the family. <laughs> James Dobson does not approve of this. Um, this is a mess. You got a dad loving one child more. You got a mother loving another child more. Talk about a dysfunctional family dynamic. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed as you've been reading the scriptures, um, but almost all of the family dynamics within the pages of scripture are a complete mess. Almost all of the families are dysfunctional at one level or another. It's almost like you have to come. It's almost like it's a prerequisite to be used by the Lord 
is you got to come from a dysfunctional family. So let me ask you, no show of hands, do you come from a dysfunctional family? <laughs> yeah, some of, some of us, got to include myself in this, some of us come from dysfunctional families. And if that's the case, I've got good news for you. It is almost a prerequisite to be used by the Lord that you got to come from a dysfunctional family. You can still be used by the Lord. The Lord rescues, redeems, and repurposes people from all sorts of dysfunctions. And so if you're someone who you were raised in a dysfunctional family and you think, I don't know if I can be of any use to the Lord, hogwash. You most certainly can't. You're in good company and the Lord wants to use you. Also, notice again the parental favoritism here. Just notice it. Um, what it does is it sows the seeds that Isaac and Rebekah will reap. They'll reap a bitter harvest in the pages to come. In the next couple of chapters, we'll see it. And parents, you got to be on your guard for this. You gotta be on your guard for this. And, but you also gotta be honest with yourself. Um, because maybe in your parenting with your children, maybe you relate to one child more naturally than you do the other. Maybe their interests and their similar, uh, their interests are similar to yours, or their personality is similar to yours, or how they receive communication and love is similar to your, and similar to you, and therefore it's just easier. You gotta be on the guard for that because that's the soil where favoritism takes root. And you gotta be on the guard for that. You have to work to not compare your children. Um, you have to work to make sure you're spending equal, equal time with all of your children. You have to work to love and appreciate their differences. And you have to work, and it is work, to communicate in such a way, to try to communicate in such a way that they hear in their own heart. You gotta be able to, you gotta, when you walk into a room, and I gotta do this too, all the time. When I walk into each of my children's room, I gotta think, how am I communicating to this child so that it taps into their heart? And if you don't do that, if you don't take up their different personalities and consider it, you're just running over one of them. You're gonna, you're only gonna relate well to the one who's most like you. And so it's real work there. And Isaac and Rebecca, they don't do it. They play favorites. And, as I said, the seeds are sown here, and it will reap. They will reap a bitter harvest in the pages to come. Uh, it's a terrible thing. And by also note one more thing: How much time do I got? Oh, not too much. Um, note one more thing, though. Even the best of marriages, the marriages that start in heaven, because remember, the Lord led the servant to Rebecca to choose for Isaac. So even the very best marriages, if you're not walking in step with the Lord. It will create the dysfunction in your own home. The best marriages can go haywire really, really quickly. And that's what we see here with Isaac and Rebecca. Now, what we're going to see, what's going to happen here in verses 29 through 34 is Moses will tell us how, now please hear this, how God's sovereign choice, Moses will tell us how God's sovereign choice of Jacob to carry the Abrahamic covenant forward will come to be realized through the choices of Jacob and Isaac. Does that make sense? I'm sorry, of Jacob and Esau. How God makes a choice, and he says it's going to go through Jacob. But then the humans make choices. Jacob and Esau make choices that ratifies the Lord's decision. So there's compatibilism happening here 
where the Lord makes choices and humans make choices and somehow they're working together mysteriously, sovereignly. They're working together so that the Lord's purposes are being accomplished. And what you'll see in this account is neither of the sons are exemplary. Both Jacob and Esau are messed up, flawed humans. Esau will be depicted, you'll see it in a second, he'll be depicted as an animal. As being animal-like and reckless. While Jacob, it will be depicted as being cold, calculating, and manipulative. And while Esau may be a great hunter, in the end, he's going to get trapped by his own brother. His brother knows how to lay a better trap. And Esau is going to become a prey to his own physical appetites. And so let's look at it. Verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking, when he was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. He's probably been out hunting all day. Maybe a couple days, he comes in from the field, and he is just exhausted. And Esau said to, said to Jacob, the younger brother, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright right now. <sighs> Remember, uh, a birthright, it meant a, we talked about this earlier, privileged status, a double portion of the property. And for Abraham's family, the one who possesses it, the one who has the birthright inherits the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant promises would come through him. And again, no doubt, Abraham told the two sons about the covenant promises when these two sons were growing up and they were hearing about God's faithfulness. So Esau comes in and he's famished and he just starts pointing at the pot. He's pointing at the pot of, of stew that smells so good. Derek Kidner in his commentary on this section, listen to what he says. He says, if Jacob is ruthless here, Esau is feckless. The biblical translations have toned down his sputtering. He literally says, let me gulp down some of this red stuff. This red stuff. That's all he can get out. Let me gulp down some of this red stuff. He goes on, he says, it conveys the basic idea of gulping down food. And the rabbis used it, the word, to describe the activity of cramming food down the throat of an animal. So he's actually become an animal. What the author is trying to show us is that Esau is getting trapped. He's this famous hunter, well-known hunter, but he's actually in the end going to get trapped, going to get trapped. And so Jacob says, you want this, this stew? You're really hungry? You got a physical appetite? You want this? Well, then sell me your birthright right now. And Esau says, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? And so Jacob says, verse 33, swear to me. He says, swear to me right now. Verbal contract. It's binding right here in our little tent. Uh, swear to me. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Look at what Esau just did. Talk about consequences. Talk about devastating consequences. What did he do? Here's what he did. He forfeited his spiritual inheritance to satisfy his physical appetites. Boy, does that sound familiar? Somebody who would trade spiritual inheritances to satisfy their physical appetites. Now listen, we may live centuries apart from Esau, 
But the temptation for you, or, you and I are exactly the same, are they not? It may not be a mess of stew, but it may be something else. It may be looking what you're looking at on the computer. It may be having a conversation with someone of the opposite sex who's not your spouse. And you know it's going to only going to lead you one position. It's going to get you emotionally attached. And therefore you'll stop communicating with your spouse. Therefore you'll be walking in sin, not delighting in the Lord. See, what happens here with Esau is he says, I want this right now. This temporary thing. This temporary moment. I want this more than the eternal things. I'm going to relinquish eternal things to satisfy my physical appetites. And I'll tell you what, that happens all the time. Happens all the time. We're not all that different than Esau. And my friend, it had devastating effects on Esau's life, and it will have devastating effects on your life as well. If you squander your spiritual inheritance to satisfy your physical appetites, there will be devastating consequences for you as well. This is a warning from Scripture of not to do it, not to, not to squander your inheritance to satisfy some temporary appetite, but to keep the long view on things, to keep the eternal view on things. And the account ends in verse 34. It says, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate. Now note the way that even these words are, are um, given to us, the verbs. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, rose, and went his way. More animal-like. Just boom, 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 boom. Ate, drank, rose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He despised his birthright. Forfeited his spiritual inheritance for a physical appetite. Again, this is a, this is a warning to us. Okay. Let's stop there. Here's what I want to do. I want to go back and I want to bring out two things that this passage teaches us about the Lord and about us. Two things this passage teaches us about the Lord and about us. Here's the first one. Please notice. The first one is this. The wisdom of God, the wisdom of God subverts the wisdom of man, but will accomplish the Lord's redemptive purposes. I know that was a long sentence. Let me give it to you again. The wisdom of God subverts the wisdom of man, but will bring about the Lord's redemptive purposes. The wisdom of God subverts the wisdom of man, but will bring about the Lord's redemptive purposes. And what we see in this account is God working out his purposes in ways that are completely contrary to human wisdom. That's his choice of choosing the older to serve the younger. Which again was counterintuitive to the wisdom of the day. So the wisdom of God subverts the wisdom of man. And remember, it would have been so important for the children of Israel to understand this story. It would have been incredibly important for them to understand this story. Again, this is not just the origin of Jacob and Esau. This is the origin of an entire nation. So the children of Israel had to understand something. And they had to understand this. The reason that God chose them was not because of their greatness. God didn't choose Jacob because he was the oldest. Because he wasn't. The Lord did something that was contrary to convention. In the same way, God did not choose the nation of Israel because of their greatness. Well, why did he choose them then? Turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7, about 150 pages forward in your Bible. Deuteronomy, 
chapter 7. Deuteronomy is uh, before the book of Joshua and Judges. Moses is teaching the children of Israel that God did not choose Israel because they were the greatest or they were the most important. Well, then why does, why did God choose them and why does God choose anybody? Well, look at what, look at what uh, Moses tells them. Deuteronomy chapter seven, beginning in verse six. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Well, if it's not because I'm the largest or the greatest, then why is it? Well, verse 8, it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Now listen, this is a principle that runs all the way throughout Scripture. The wisdom of God subverts the wisdom of man, but it will bring about his redemptive purposes. God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. And oftentimes, it's a paradox to us. It's, it's, uh, it's the least. He chooses the least, not the greatest. Do you remember what Jesus said? Again and again and again in his teaching, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. That's God's way. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, yeah, let's turn there. We got time. For 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn over to it. I read this to you a couple weeks ago. And it's worth reading again. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Skip down to verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26. He says, Paul says, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble, were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, the wisdom of God subverts the wisdom of man, but it brings forth his redemptive purposes. And nowhere is this seen more clearly than in the cross. Nowhere else is it seen more clearly than in the cross of Jesus Christ. In the cross, you have the symbol of weakness, of defeat, and of death. You have the, the symbol of suffering and shame. And Paul says, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power and the wisdom of God. Because to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's through the cross, the place that seems to epitomize defeat, weakness, and suffering. It's through the cross. It's through the worst possible circumstances that God brings forth the best possible plan. So what do we learn? What's the first thing we learn? We learn that the wisdom of God subverts the wisdom of man, but it brings forth his redemptive purposes. Here's the second thing we see. The grace of God. The grace of God rests not on the merit of man, but completely upon the mercy of God. The grace of God 
rests not on the merit of man, but completely on the mercy of God. And this is exactly what Paul, how Paul applied this passage. In Romans chapter 9, I will not make you turn there. But this is exactly what Paul says. I'll read it to you. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. He says this. He says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing. Now listen. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God's grace. What does that mean for you? It means there's nothing you can merit. You can't merit God's grace. Jacob didn't merit God's grace. God didn't choose Jacob because he was more worthy than Esau. He didn't choose Jacob because he was a better man than Esau. Because we saw he wasn't. What we see in the story of Jacob is that he was a very flawed, very broken, very sinful man. Which means the grace he received was an absolute gift. It was the sheer mercy of the Lord, and he never merited it. And my friend, so it is with you. The grace of God rests entirely, not upon the merit of man, but upon God's mercy. Well, how? How? How can God's mercy be extended to sinful humans? Here's how. And it's back to the first one, because in the wisdom of God, he sends forth his son, Christ Jesus, who, though he was completely sinless, he dies the death of a terrible sinner. So that you, a terrible sinner, when you put your faith in him, you can receive his pardon. You can receive the record of sinlessness that he achieved. And you see, in the great paradox of the gospel, the great paradox of the gospel, is that the only people who are worthy of the Lord's grace are those people who freely admit that they're completely unworthy of it. Those are the only people who are made worthy. The only people who are ever made worthy of the gospel are people who freely admit, I'm completely unworthy of the gospel. And therefore, they receive it joyfully, just like a gift. They receive his mercy as a gift. And his mercy given to you through Jesus Christ, what it will do for you, it'll do two things. Here's the first thing it'll do, and I'll close with this. It will propel you out in service. The very first thing that the Lord's grace, when it's given to you, will do, it will propel you out in service. Because once you've tasted, and once you've seen, once you've tasted and seen his mercy and grace, it it propels you out in service to your fellow man, because you want everybody to taste and see his mercy. You want everybody to experience his grace. And so you'll look for every opportunity you can. You'll look for every opportunity and you'll take every opportunity to make known that Jesus' grace is available. And so it'll propel you out. But then the second thing it'll do, it'll bring you in. It'll bring you in. To what? To the Lord's table. You'll come to the Lord's table rejoicing with your brothers and sisters. You'll come to the Lord's table with your brothers and sisters, and you will worship the Lord, remembering what he has done so that you could taste and see 
the Lord's grace. And that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to come to the Lord's table. And so this morning, you should have, hopefully, grabbed a packet of communion. So go ahead and open it up. Let me pray, and then we'll partake of the communion, and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, as we hold these elements in our hands, we know that they are tangible expressions of the grace and the forgiveness that you've given to us through the cross of Christ. That your body was broken, it was split wide open, Lord. And your blood was spilt so that you could die the death that we deserve to die. And we can inherit your spiritual inheritance, a state of righteousness with God that you earned and you give freely to anyone and everyone who comes to you in repentant faith. This is marvelous news, Lord. We know that we're not worthy of this, and yet we receive it joyfully. And we long for the day, Lord, when we will see you face to face. We will stand upon a renewed creation in renewed bodies. Hallelujah. And we will see you and we will rejoice in all that you have done. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.